Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. This is the number one daily radio show for realtors looking for a no BS, authentic, real-time coaching experience. What's really working in today's market, how to generate more leads, make more money, and have more time for what you love in your life. And now your hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. We are back. And yes, we did have to take an unfortunate two days off from the podcast because we are dealing with COVID. Julie and I both got COVID. Zoe got COVID. Zoe got strep throat. Zoe had some other health problems, but we're all on the mend now. Thanks for all of you who are giving us so many heartfelt um, prayers. You know, we really felt them. Zoe got better quick. And uh, yeah, nasty stuff, but let's move forward. So we are talking about a real estate agent's guide to getting rich and staying rich. And over the previous two shows, I think I've demonstrated, at least based on all the feedback, that it's easier to get rich than it is to stay rich. <laughs> so what we're going to be focusing on today is we're going to be focusing on some of the tenets of actually not just uh, building wealth, but maintaining wealth. The last show, we talked about wealth destroyers. And I, that was a show I got a lot of great feedback on, which I was thrilled about. I think you guys can tell this is one of my favorite topics because this is one of the things that so few people talk about. And frankly, all of this information that Julie and I are sharing with you, we had to go out and you know find over the past three decades. It wasn't easy for us to discover all this content, and especially the way we're presenting it to you, uh, because for the most part, when you're reading a financial book, for example, the financial book is going to be biased towards like buying stocks or mutual funds or investing in this and the other things. Same things goes with real estate. Same thing goes with all these other things. But how's all this stuff fit together? How does all this stuff fit together for the sake of uh, a real estate agent's business who's, you know, generally speaking, transactionally paid, right? So that's what we discovered along the way in the past 30 years, but also what we just have self-help, I'm sorry, what we've helped others to discover for themselves, coaching clients and certainly podcast listeners. So I'm going to go through these points today, and this is basically all the things I think that you guys will agree after you hear all these points, what you should be doing to make sure you maintain the wealth after you've created it. And the last part, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you about the various vehicles to which you should be investing in. And I'm going to be very specific. Uh, and I'm give you, I'm, what my goal here is just to plant seeds. Then you guys go out there and do your own self-discovery of what makes sense to you. Julia and I are not financial planners. We're not financial advisors. We're not advising you towards any particular stock or anything like that. We're telling you what we've done. We're telling you what we've advised other people to do, and we're going to tell you what the results have been. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't discovered this yet, Julie and I are incredibly conservative uh, and very risk-averse when it comes to wealth creation, and it's worked for us for the past few decades. And a lot of people have, uh, at times, you know, we've had our friends and some of our family members and our colleagues and other business owners who are all of a sudden you know, uh, swinging from the branches because they bet really good on some sort of, you know, more risky investment. But then we've seen what happened when the branch breaks. For example, crypto. Sound familiar with anyone? Uh, Julie and I never invested in crypto. We never invested in some of these other sort of more trendy, short-term, flash-in-the-pan type investments. We've always been slow and boring. (laughs) And slow and boring is actually what's worked for us. And slow and boring will work for you too. Um, And the nice thing about slow and boring is after you get the slow and boring aspect of your investment uh, thesis worked out, then you can start doing the stuff that's more risky, and I'm going to touch on that today as well. All right, 
So remember, uh, it is not too late for you to join Premier Coaching, and Premier Coaching is 100% free. All you have to do is text the word Premier to 47372. Text the word Premier to 47372. And when you do, we'll text you back a link, and with that link, you click it, and 22 seconds later, and yes, I timed it, you can join Premier Coaching. Premier Coaching is, from what I understand, the nation's leading coaching program. And yes, this does include a daily semi-private coaching call with with a Harris certified coach. Forgive me if I'm a little breathy. I'm still getting over the last remnants of COVID. All right, so moving forward. But again, I'm sorry. So remember, text the word Premier to 47372. Text the word Premier to 47372. Or you can just go to members.timandjulieharris.com, members.timandjulieharris.com. All right, so let's say at this point you figured out how to – you've created a predictable and duplicatable real estate practice. We're going to assume that's true. You've been in premier coaching for a while. You've, uh, you have you know, know how to take listing appointments. You know how to be proactively lead generating, pre-qualifying, presenting. You've got a good flow going, and you have fairly consistent cash flow. So you, know now, you now know how to proactively generate business, close business, um, and you now know how to generate a consistent profit. That's the main thing. If you can't c- create a consistent profit, you'll never have enough money left over to actually reinvest and start making yourself rich. You do now at this point, I'm assuming, understand that long-term sustainable success is the result of doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it at the highest level. And, uh, you know, we know you can actually do this. And so can you, and so you know this as well. You know, it's kind of interesting as we're entering into this uncertain time in the economy, and it definitely is a weird time. First time in all of our lives. Anyone who says they've lived through a time like this before is not telling the truth because the setup circumstances and the headwinds in the economy are very unique. The only thing that's similar, listeners, and do again, always do your research yourself on this. The only thing similar in history uh, started in 1967 and lasted through 1982, and that was the last time we had inflation like this. I was reading that uh, Ray Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil? No, it was some, another Ray. Again, I got COVID brain here, folks, a little bit, but maybe it was Ray Kurzweil. He was predicting that you're going to have an inflation uh, time where inflation is going to consistently increase by as little as 5 to 6% per year and as much as close to 10% uh, per year for the next 10 years. And it's going to level off. So in other words, we're going to be seeing inflationary times uh, at, at its trough. It's still going to be 5 to 6% uh, per year. And I think that's pretty incredible if you think about it, that that's how high inflation could be. That means essentially if you – Bought something, you know, a hundred thousand dollar house, and it adds, you know, five or six percent per year in just inflation over the next five years. You guys can kind of do the math on how much that's going to be worth. But remember, at the same time, the the thing that's, you know, that sounds good, right? But the problem with inflation is everything else is going to go up as well. So food's going to go up, water's going to go up, and you know, electricity's going to go up, insurance is going to go up. Everything is going to increase in cost. So at the same time, your assets will become worth more money. The buying power, if you were to sell those assets, will be worth about the same. So it's a double-edged sword. And we're also looking at, indeed, interest rates going up. So who knows where that, how this is all going to short, uh, sort out. But do know this, that the greatest fortunes have always been made during the greatest times of change. We say this on the podcast a lot, and the reason I really drill down on that is because a lot of you are suckered into believing, frankly, that you can only make money when the market's going one direction. You can only make money when the interest rates are low. You can only make money when this or that and the other things are happening, and it's not happening now. So you might as well turtle up and wait for the clouds to clear. That is the absolute stupidest thing you can be doing because when there's the most need for caring, competent, skilled real estate agents, that's when you have the most opportunity to make the most money. Makes sense? And when there's the least need for caring, competent, skilled agents, in other words, the market we are just leaving because houses were selling themselves, then you have the sort of, uh, you know, the branding, the look at me, the ego stuff, 
they, uh, all this stuff starts creeping into the market, and agents spend their time doing the wrong things. I mean, the market we're leaving, you didn't really have to have a high skill set because people were buying and selling out of fear of missing out. Now, in this new market, you better sure as heck have a skill set um, or, or you're going to be the one that's going to miss out. So hopefully all this makes sense. So as we work through these financial points, just understand that none of this means anything unless you have your head screwed on straight about how to actually run a successful, profitable real estate practice. And again, that's what Premier Coaching is all about. So please remember, you can join Premier Coaching for free. Just text the word Premier to 47372 or just go to members.timandjulieharris.com. All right, so I covered some of these points in the previous two shows, so I'm going to go through some of these relatively fast. And I think this will, I think, really draw a line under where your mindset should be. So the first one we talked about, I think, a lot on the first day, but I'll just review this with you. What is your current belief about actually being rich? How do you define rich? What do you think about rich people? That really is a very important place to start because if you actually have a little bit of deep-rooted, you know, nasty feelings towards people that are rich, and a lot of us do without even knowing it. We think that rich, in order to be rich, you have to take from somebody else. There's all these screwed up thoughts and beliefs that we pick up that become part of our operating system in our heads, and we don't realize we have it until we actually confront them. You have to confront those limiting beliefs about your ability to be rich or really what it means to be rich. And be honest with yourself. Do you have any negative feelings towards rich people? I bet you do. If you watch any mainstream media, you know you do. If you went to public schools, you probably do. You guys get my point? I mean, I know when Julie and I got into real estate and we started becoming more successful, I mean, we certainly weren't rich and for quite a while until we actually started accumulating assets um, from the profits we were making from selling real estate. But we ran into a lot of resentment and just little subtle ways for the fact that we are becoming more successful. And we too, this is another little interesting thing that we worked out. When Julie and I were starting to, you know, we decided we wanted to sell more expensive houses, we had really stupid biases towards the people who own the, you know, more expensive houses. We figured they were all born with it and all these other things. And it took our own experience to realize that none of those things were true. They were just normal people like Julie and I who just were further up the mountain, who uh, had been, you know, working harder for longer. And they appreciated the fact that we are entrepreneurial just like they were. And that is a real interesting point that most first-generation millionaires in America, like 99%, are self-made business owners, just like all of you guys. All right, so point number two, and this one's really important. We've seen people make this mistake countless times. Um, put your own financial auction mask on first. Before investing, you must have a minimum of 12 months of savings. Set aside 90 days of cash. It could be in a traditional savings account. Put the rest somewhere else, uh, where it's, uh, w which is uh, physically conservative and harder for you to spend and uh, consider gold. Uh, gold is not really an investment. Gold is just a store of wealth, just like money. So I'm not suggesting be a gold bug. I'm just suggesting put the money someplace where the money will at least be there. Gold is money. It's been money for 2,000 years. Um, you know, Again, not telling you to buy gold, thinking it's going to be worth $10,000 an ounce, just saying it's a good place to store wealth. And the nice thing about gold is that you, know, you don't have to worry about the conditions in which you're storing it. But the point being, the big takeaway is make sure you have a lot of cash savings. 90 days of cash savings will make you sleep a lot better. And put that someplace you can't easily uh, access it. Put it someplace where you can't you know, easily just you know, transfer into or out of it. It can't be like that. It's got to be hard, fast savings. Isn't that something like your grandma would have told you, by the way? <laughs> you know, Make sure you have some money for the rainy day. But no one does it anymore. You know, I know that's true because look what happened in COVID. 
and there was a survey how many people had even like 30 days worth of savings. It was like nobody. Most people didn't even have two weeks worth of savings. That's the reason the government had to mail out stimulus checks. That's horrible. You shouldn't be like that. Make sure you got some savings stocked away. Point number three, uh, commit, and follow, uh, commit and follow the system. From each and every commission check, we did talk about this on the first day, set aside at least 20% for taxes, 20% uh, on, to your savings, and the rest can go to an operations account. Now, we do want you to, and again, talk to a, a, an accountant about this, but we do want you to set yourself up as a W-2 employee of a corporation that you own, and the reason is, is because you will be able to save taxes. I'm not going to give you tax advice other than what I just said. Talk to an accountant, and in most states, it's not you as an individual practitioner or certainly as a broker are going to be vastly better off to incorporate. You're going to you know, incorporate Bob Smith Realty or Bob Smith Investments or whatever you want to call it. doesn't matter. And then you're going to become an employee. It's easier for you to get, uh, frankly, build credit that way. It'll be easier for you if you have to borrow money to borrow money if you're an employee of a company, even if it's a company you're the sole shareholder of. I know that sounds screwy, but it's true. Um, and the biggest reason is because is I believe uh, you will also be able to save, I think it's all of the self-employment tax. So make sure you look into that and ask your accountant or just start doing homework on this. It is also worth mentioning, really be clear about this. Your accountant's job is to not give you financial advice. Julie and I made that mistake early on. We figured the accountant would be there to help us save taxes. The accountant would be there to give us financial advice. Nope, the accountant there is felt forms, tell you where to mail the check. That's what the accountant's job is. Well, then we figured a financial advisor. We'll go to a financial advisor, Julie. Let's just do that. So we hired a couple financial advisors. And you know what their job was? To sell us stocks and mutual funds, take our money, and then send us invoices every year telling us what we did or didn't make, right? So along the way, we figured out quickly that all these people's jobs are essentially is to be salespeople for the product that they're selling their service or the stock in that case. You have to be your own financial guru. And what you'll discover is along the way, you will pick up your own investing style. And um, again, Julie's eye is very conservative, and I'm going to share that with you. And the reason that we started out being very conservative versus very speculative, and what most people do when they're building wealth for the first time, is they're overly speculative because they're uh, financially naive, frankly, and they don't know that uh, they essentially long-term wealth is built conservatively, and the best way to build short or to blow short-term wealth is to be overly speculative. And again, that's what a lot of people will do. So I, I'll see people, and you guys will see it too. They'll invest too much money in flips. They'll invest too much money in just speculative, bizarre things. Again, I lean into crypto again. Some of the things that people were doing just this past, you know, generation of like say 10 years, for the last five years, people were doing some really crazy stuff. Those are the signs that there's a lot of people out there that are you know, experiencing a lot of sudden new wealth and they're going to lose it just as fast as they gained it because nobody celebrates the buying of a single family house in Columbus, Ohio, right? <laughs> no one's going to say, hey, Bob, congratulations. You just bought another single family. Congratulations. Now you get to have a rental property. It's not, it's not something that people really like to brag up. People want to go on Instagram with a picture of, you know, how they're really making a killing because they figured out how to speculate on something and get really big returns on investments. But the long-term wealth has always been built through slow-growing slow, slow growing short slow-growing long-term investments. Again, I got a little bit of COVID brain, but I'm doing my best. All right, so next point, point number four in my notes. Get clear on your tax plan. Um, if you owe taxes, pay them off as soon as possible. If that's not feasible, get on a payment plan. It doesn't make sense to continue uh, huge interest and penalties, obviously, 
So make sure you're being very proficient with your tax savings. And uh, again, if you are an employee of a company that you own, you'll be finding yourself probably paying a lot less in taxes. And obviously, we want you to invest in real estate. Investing in real estate is uh, has it's really a there's three huge advantages. Number one, you get cash flow from the the rental property, assuming there's cash flow. Then you get appreciation, you know, or inflation, and then you get depreciation. There's nothing else that you can buy. You could argue a small business, and I wouldn't argue against you. But you, there's nothing else you can buy that's as passive. And by saying uh, real estate's passive is not true. Real estate's not passive in the truest sense. But those three things, you get appreciation, depreciation, you get cash flow. Those three things you do not get with uh, stocks or mutual funds or with really, uh, you know, certainly gold or anything like that. So you can have all those things going for you with rental properties. Now, I'm going to tell you where people screw up in rental properties. And I had this conversation with a, um, you know, I don't know, a, you know, one of these guys that's a know-it-all before he knows anything types. And I, so I'm having a conversation with him on the phone with another agent who's part of our EXP group. And he's telling, I'm telling, he's asking me about wealth building because he'd been listening to the podcast. And I told him what Julie and I did. And he, he you know, he's 28 years old, knew it all. And he said to me, he said, uh, so don't you wish you guys would have taken the money from all those rental properties that you owned and bought more rental properties? And just essentially what he was suggesting was is borrowing against the existing properties or not having them paid off and then having more and more and more mortgages. And I said, nope. I said, we intentionally didn't do it that way. So I wanna, I'm going to paint this out for you guys so you can understand because a lot of you are really believing this is the way you build long-term wealth. So what they'll do is they'll talk about how they bought a, uh, like a, you know, a single family or double or triple. There's a lot of these investment gurus, and, and you don't see that I'm air quoting that, that are especially on social. And what they'll say is they'll say buy a three-family or a two-family, and let's say you buy it for $500,000. And let's say you put down $50,000 or whatever. So you don't have a lot of equity in it, basically none. And, and then you wait for a year or two, you do some improvements, and you, get, and you are able to refinance it. And then they're going to suggest you not only pull your $50,000 out in a refinance, but maybe some of the um, appreciation of the inflated value of the home, and then you buy another one, then you buy another one, then you buy another one. You've heard all this before, right? And then they're going to talk about, and you're going to see this, they're going to be saying, I am a, you know, I have $10 trillion of net worth. Well, let me just really break this out for you guys so you can understand. Number one, net worth, in my humble opinion, I think all of you will agree, does not include the debt on the property. So if you owe a uh, million dollars on a property um, and you have uh, $50,000 of equity, let's say you owe nine fifty and you have 50,000 in equity, your net worth on that property is not a million dollars. It's 50,000. But what a lot of these folks will do is they'll say, because I own a million dollar property, I have a million dollars in net worth. That is what they actually say. <laughs> I'm not making that up. They're including the debt as something that's a positive on their balance sheet. It makes no sense, but that's what they do because it's not really investing. It's bragging. It's ego. It's, you know, it's a recipe for disaster. But that aside, here's the real problem with this, and I've seen this happen through three big waves of real estate markets, is people will buy a bunch of properties. Okay, congratulations. You've got 10 rental properties. It sounds good, right? Well, where are all the weak spots in that? They all have mortgages. They're probably all going to be highly concentrated in one sort of geographic area. What happens if all of a sudden some of those properties go vacant? Who's making those payments? Well, let's say you have 10 properties, and let's say they all have mortgage payments of, say, $2,000 each, and you're all in, you know, let's say you're maybe making, you're making probably because you bought all these fairly recently, you're maybe making $100 or $200 on each of them, maybe. That's all you're making on all of them. So you're making like 20, you know, you guys can do the math. 
So what you're then going to discover, that's per year, by the way. So what you're going to discover then, if some of them go vacant, who's going to make the mortgage payment? You are. What if you have three or four of them vacant? What if five or six of them are vacant? What if there's a generalized recession in your particular area where you have all these rental properties? What if there's unemployment? What if there's all these other things? And here's the other thing that's fascinating. A lot of you, like, so people are really misunderstanding really what happened during the housing crash in 07. I'll tell you what happened. A whole bunch of people had a whole bunch of really short-term variable rate mortgages that they couldn't refinance uh, and they couldn't afford the payments on the new uh, the new payments on the houses based on the higher interest rates once the houses re, uh, were refinanced. So they would take out short-term ninja loans, no income job, no assets, and they do it for like a, you know, a, a three-year arm or a two-year arm or a five-year arm. And when those arms adjusted, they adjusted to whatever the prevailing rate was, they couldn't afford the prevailing rate. So most, if not all, the mortgages that were being done back then were these really short-term crazy loans because people and banks and all these people are rationalizing Real estate never loses value. People can just refinance. The house will be worth a lot more. And, you know, we can just continue to ascend this ladder of real estate appreciation. Well, except when it didn't happen. So a lot of people were caught. They didn't just abandon the houses. I've heard people say this was just a bunch of bullshit. People abandoned the houses because of the fact that they didn't have any equity. People don't – people have – for generations have had no equity in their houses, okay? That's not an unusual thing. People won't abandon their houses because they have no equity. It's not like, well, I guess I don't need to live in this house anymore. I don't have any equity. I'm going to go rent someplace. That makes no sense, does it? But people will abandon a house that they can't make the payment. So if the mortgage uh, comes due, it, you know, essentially there's a balloon payment. They have to refinance, uh, and they can't afford the new payment, or they can't even refinance, then they abandon the house. And that's what actually happened. So be careful when all these well-meaning, air quotes again, gurus start coming out of the woodwork trying to tell you how to – this time it's just like last time. It's not. It's significantly different. Uh, and just to make you, all of you feel a lot more secure, uh, there is, I think, less than 10% or something. I, I'm remembering, again, I got COVID brain, but I think it was 249,000 total mortgages that were, uh, it was basically no amount of mortgages were these loans that were um, variable rate. Again, don't hold me to the numbers. I'm, I'm blaming my cold medicine. But the moral of the story is, as a vast majority of everyone that has a loan has a loan that's less than 4% and it's 30-year fixed. So even if your mortgage, uh, even if your payment, uh, I'm sorry, even if the, the economy gets worse, you're still going to need a place to live. Even if for some reason your house is no longer increasing in value every year like it has been, you're still going to need a place to live. And where you're living because of your low mortgage payment is going to be less than what the equivalent rent's going to be. And so you're, what you're really going to see as a result of any kind of rising interest rates is you're going to see people not selling. You're just going to see people staying put. And even if they do have to sell, relocation, you know, what am I going to do with the house? They're just going to rent it. Oh, and there's the other thing. And Julie and I talked about this in the past podcast. People can always do assumable mortgages. You can actually, in all the mortgages, Julie researched this, people can actually assume with release a mortgage. So if you've got a really kick-ass mortgage with 3.5% interest, you can have somebody write you a check, pay you for the in, uh, pay you for your equity in your house, cash you out of the house, and then they can assume your mortgage with a release from the mortgage company, and it, it literally just step into your shoes. And that you know really low interest rate mortgage is now their mortgage, and you walk away with your equity. So please be very careful who you're listening to if people are trying to pump you full of doom and gloom about a housing bust. If there was going to be any sort of meaningful setback in home values or a decline in home values, Julie and I would certainly be telling you. All right, now here's the next point. 
Make initial investments devoid of ego and speculation. Your goal is to get to a million invested and then turn that into 10 million invested. Your first million will be the hardest. That is definitely true. After your first million is solemnly invested, the future investments should be more diversified, real estate, gold stocks, limited partnerships, etc. So now what are we talking about? What happens is after you actually have a initial, uh, a, once you've actually accumulated a million dollars, and you, frankly, real estate's one of the quickest ways to do it, you're then going to find that that, because of inflation, especially during this time, that money is going to actually increase in value, or the value of that asset, or those assets are going to increase in value a lot quicker. So once you accept the fact that you can actually build wealth following the plan that we've been laying out for you over the past few podcasts, and once you have the discipline to have created a duplicatable real estate business where you're making consistent cash flow, then what you'll discover is saving the money. That's going to be the next big, you know, setting it aside every month off every paycheck. That's going to be the next big hurdle a lot of you are going to have to deal with. We talked about that on past podcasts too. Once you start doing that, then just grow slow and be, and be very, very um, careful not to do things that are too speculative. It'll be very tempting for you to take the blue pill thinking somehow you can skip the hard work, but you can't. It always goes back to that same uh, uh, ethos, right? If you want ever-increasing long-term levels of success in your business and personal life, do what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it at the highest level. That really is the key thing, and that goes with investing as well. It's also worth mentioning, and I think (laughs) everyone knows this innately, but it sucks to say it. I don't like saying it or thinking it, but it's true. Everything in life worth having takes like, you know, in my experience, about 10 times longer than I thought it would, or you think it should, right? Or you convince yourself, why is it taking so long for me to do X? It seems like everyone else can do it so much faster. What's well, not really true. It's just everything in life worth having a great relationship, financial security, a great business, a great reputation. There are no shortcuts, but look how many people are attracted in life to believing that they're shortcuts. There are people who are getting rich off selling you guys the ideas that are shortcuts. Look at this one, for example. When you hear someone talk about branding, for example, your brand is everything. Build your brand. Okay, conceptually, that makes sense. So so let's define what is brand. Hold on. (coughs) Sorry. Um, So what is brand? And you ask them what brand is, and they'll tell you how the market perceives you. Your brand is your, you know, this, your other thing. These are the qualities that, that your brand is. Your brand is that you're, you know, you're industrious, you're studious, you're you know, whatever, whatever, right? You're going to have all these defined terms, how people are supposed to feel when they think of your name. Well, how's that different than the word reputation, right? So how do you define Mr. Brand Building Expert, the word reputation? Well, they won't give you a definition that's much different than what you just said. So what they're trying, what they just said. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to convince you that you can spend money and, you know, do gimmicks basically to somehow convince the world that you have a great reputation. That's what branding in essence is. Branding is not, uh, is, is really sold, especially to real estate agents, as a shortcut around doing the real work of real estate. And that's the reason it doesn't work. Ultimately, your brand comes from the people you helped and the products. And, and you know, really, if you're selling products, obviously the quality of your products, but you guys are service providers. So it's the people you helped, the problems that you solved, and the reputation you build along the way from being somebody that's a reliable professional, somebody that, you know, frankly, people trust. You can't shortcut that. I don't care how many pictures of you, you know, having blueberry pie with your golden retriever you want to put up on Instagram. It won't matter. You might be a likable person. You might be really good at social, but there's no shortcuts. And you're seeing all of that, you know, I don't know what you want to call it. It's sort of like 
these big macro trends, they boil up, they, they come up and they go down. Like, again, I don't, I don't want you guys to think I'm a thousand years old. I'm 52, so I'm not a thousand years old, but you know, I'm not a uh, spring chicken. I've seen, and Julie and I've seen, and by the way, Julie's still feeling a little sick. That's the reason she's not on the show today. So I've seen in the past 30 years, branding and marketing come and go. The only time branding and marketing really becomes omnipresent uh, in real estate is when the market is going in one direction. The market is going up. There's a lot of FOMO. It's a seller's market. The branding and marketing people come out of the woodwork. Why? Because branding and marketing is not a skills-based activity. It's about spending money. The branding and marketing companies want you to believe that you have to do it in order to sell real estate. And sure enough, you do the branding and marketing and you sell real estate. But the reality of it is, is the market is what's selling the real estate because there's enough FOMO in the market because it's a seller's market. As soon as that seller's market changes, watch how fast all these branding and marketing gurus just go away. They dissipate like fart in the wind. Why? Because it now becomes a skills-based market. That's what has happened every single time and it'll happen again. You don't believe me? Look what's happening with all of the companies that sell essentially what amounts to branding and marketing um, ads on social media. They're going away too. These are just predictable trends that if you haven't give yourself enough time in an industry, you'll see they come and they go. The one thing that will not come or that will always be needed and it'll never go is skills. So when you have skills, when you have the willingness to meet the market where it's at and you have the willingness to help people regardless of what their problem is, and you're not going to be somebody that's just going to try to take shortcuts, you're going to find, and especially in a market like this, there's more opportunities than there ever are. So I'm going to go on to what would have been part two, but I'm going to roll. And um, the NyQuil is doing its job, or the DayQuil. I'm going to go over a couple more points. All right, so next point, uh, protect your individual. I'm just going to say this, and then you guys can do your own homework, okay? This here is a really massive point, and I want you to really drill down on this. When you've accumulated assets, remember I said it's harder to keep them than it is to um, get them in the first place? You need to protect them. All of your assets you should consider putting into LLCs and then putting into a trust. The trust structure, and you research this on your own, that Julie and I are advocates of is the Nevada Spendthrift Trust. Definitely research that. And here's basically the way it works. If you, you will eventually have a bunch of assets. The assets don't have to be rental properties. The assets could be, could be anything, right? I mean, you could be bank accounts. It could be gold. It could be watches. It could be cars. It could be all kinds of different things. All of your, but let's just use rental properties. So if you have rental properties and they're all in the same LLC, and a tenant slips and falls in one of your, um, like say it's you know ABC LLC and it no, owns ten uh, rental properties, and it's one tenant in one of your rental properties sues because they slipped and fell and supposedly hurt themselves, and somehow it's your fault. Well, you're going to ha they're going to be able to sue the LLC that holds all of those, um, all your assets, which means they're not only going to be able to hypothetically get access to the equity in the house that they were renting, you know, because that's out where these things, how these things get resolved, but they're going to be able to hypothetically get access through a lawsuit to all of the equity and all of your assets because you kept them under the same LLC. Again, not a tax advisor. Not a, uh, you know, an asset protection person, just telling you from our own experience, definitely have each of your properties and all of your assets in their own standalone LLC and definitely do your own homework on this. As you accumulate more assets, definitely consider putting everything in a Nevada Spendthrift Trust. You do not have to be a resident of Nevada to um, actually have a Nevada Spendthrift Trust and it has one of the best trust structures. Also, 
The nice other thing that's nice about Nevada, it's a great place to set up LLCs as well. So definitely, definitely explore that if you're serious about not just building but keeping your wealth. Point number, well, I mean, next point, I'll just say next point. Uh, here's something that's very interesting, and I remember when Julie and I were studying this. We actually were studying this for our book. Um, you are going to be shocked when I tell you this. So homestead laws. You guys know homestead laws because you declare homestead when you close, and you get to save a certain amount of money on taxes, right? That's how most people think of it. But original, originally, homestead laws were designed to, you know, quite literally protect the homestead. So, so they were designed. The old story is, I heard this in Texas. I, I don't know if it's true, but it's funny. So Bob, Bob's married to, Mar married to uh, you know, Sally, and they, you know, they're ranchers, and they have five little kids. And Bob likes to go out and gambling on Friday night. Well, it turns out Bob's gambling, and he gambles away the family farm. And uh, puts up the deed, loses it in a gambling thing, and uh, now Sally and all the kids are out on the, you know, out on the prairie. Well, homestead laws through, uh, let's, so let's say Bob, you know, he loses the house, uh, he loses the, the, the hand, he loses the poker match, whatever it is, and he doesn't pay. Well, then the guy who he lost against, you know, I'm sure this isn't how it was actually done, I'm just telling you how it was explained to me. The house, the actual estate, the property, the homestead, can't be lost in litigation, even if Bob was found to be guilty. Now, another example would be, and I know this is not a great example, but it makes the point quickly, is uh, O.J. Simpson. I mean, O.J. Simpson was found, you know, eventually to be, you know, liable of all kinds of nasty things. O.J. Simpson still has a house in Florida. O.J. Simpson still has his NFL, um, from what I understand, his NFL pension and all the rest of it. So despite the fact that he had lost in court and owed money to uh, different folks, he still was able to keep his house. He still was able to keep his pension. And they'll never be able to take it away because it's all those things are protected. Well, his house is protected under homestead laws. So what's happened over the years, and again, do your own homework. If I'm not explaining this at my normal, hopefully higher level, it's, I'll blame the COVID. But the fact is, is that most of the states in, in the uh, United States had homestead laws but most of the states, with the exception of a couple, have actually made the homestead laws virtually useless. So normally homestead would have protected a farm to a certain size, a tractor, a certain number of horses and cows. And Texas actually still does it like that. But Texas does it um, where you have, in essence, what amounts to an unlimited homestead. So in Texas, you can have a homestead. I don't remember the – I think it was limited by the amount of acres, but I think it was like 500 acres or something. So you could go completely bankrupt. You can have the worst financial thing happen to you ever. doesn't matter what happens, and they can't go after your assets that are protected in the, in the homestead. And, and in the text, you guys should Google this because it, I think it's kind of quaint, but it's kind of cool too. In the Texas homestead laws, it actually lists off the number of pickup trucks you can have in your homestead, the number of like cows you can have in your homestead. Well, guess what? Florida is a very similar way. So what you see is in some of these, like Texas and Florida, some of these states that really protect people's freedoms, I'm not being political, just stating a fact, listen to what I'm saying if you don't believe me, you actually can go there and you can you know, invest a lot of money into your homestead, your home, and you, you have to be a resident, right? And then when you do so, that asset's protected forever. No matter what happens, you could bet wrong for the rest of your life, make a whole bunch of, you know, create a whole bunch of liabilities against yourself, just do a whole bunch of dumb stuff and it doesn't matter, you still get to keep your house. I think that's kind of incredible. So if you're trying to, again, this goes back to, we talked about this on the first uh, of the series. If you're trying to choose where to live, you obviously want to live in a state that treats you the best. And I would think you all agree, as entrepreneurs especially, that the states that treat you the best are generally speaking the states that charge you the least. 
Well, add to this this fact that some of these states, not only do they charge you the least as a no state taxes, but they're also, they're also going to uh, give you a really in many cases what could be defined as an almost unlimited homestead. Uh, and then you look at other states where the homestead's like $7,500, like total. I'm not even making that up. Again, we researched all this for a book, uh, our book back in 2019. But moral of the story is that's another really great, powerful asset protection tool that you need to be aware of. I think Nevada actually had a decent homestead law, but it wasn't anything like what I just described. Next point, where you're going to invest. Now, this will be my last point, and then I actually have to get to a Zoom. You have a lot of different people pulling you in a lot of different ways, trying to get you to invest in a lot of different things. Julie and I are big long-term investors in um, Vanguard index funds. Now, I'll make it super simple for you. Remember, not a financial advisor, not selling you stock, uh, not doing anything. But here's how simple this is. I, again, this is really fascinating. I've done this more than once. I had a coaching client who had an old friend from college who was their financial advisor. And the old friend from, and, and they've known each other from, since high school, the whole thing. Financial advisor, AKA salesperson. And well, it's fine, right? You know, maybe that's a great, but they were really worried about their retirement. So I asked them to send me a copy of where their money was being invested. And they asked it from their financial advisor and he gave them a whole bunch of these mutual funds and just this Mickey Mouse, but he didn't tell them what was in the mutual funds. So I sent them back and they finally come up with the information. And then I looked at where all the ticker symbols were and I looked them all up. And what this guy had been investing them into is nothing other than the same stocks that were making up the Vanguard index funds that they could have invested in for basically free. So he was charging them 2% per year. And I forget what the, there was other fees too. I think it amounted to something like 4% per year to invest in something that they could have been investing in for free. And so there was a, there, uh, there was a um, competition or something. Uh, I think it was a bet actually that Warren Buffett did with a hedge, some big hedge fund guy, the biggest hedge fund guy ever. And it was a 10 year bet and Warren Buffett bet him, Again, don't remember the amount of money, but it was um, a gentleman's bet mainly, uh, mainly that over 10 years, that investing in an S&P 500 index fund would outperform this guy's hedge fund, and it did. It obliterated it. And Warren Buffett uh, also said, I mean, if you're going to be seeking financial advice, Warren Buffett, right? Isn't that going to be the go-to? Warren Buffett also said that when he passes, passes away, the money he's leaving primarily for his wife and his heirs is all going to be converted not to Berkshire stock, primarily, but to, guess what, index funds. Now, you need to research what these are, but the essence of it is it's the least expensive way for you to get the most bang for your buck with investing. And it's very easy to buy these. So here's your uh, way forward with all this. Research, um, let's see, uh, I mentioned it already, Vanguard, but uh, research Vanguard 3 fund portfolio, Vanguard 5 fund portfolio. And also, if you want to really get into researching this, which I do maybe a couple times per year, just making sure my information is accurate. Uh, there's a really cool, it's old school forum called Bogleheads. I know it sounds crazy, but it's, if I remember correctly, it's B-O-G-E-L heads, H-E-A-D-S dot org. And you can go there and there are people that are real aficionados about uh, Vanguard index funds and they will track different three fund portfolios. So all that is, is a three fund portfolio would be always, S&P 500, and then you might have a international fund, which is also going to be another index fund, and then maybe a bond fund, but bonds right now are doing that great. So moral of the story is, is just go and do your own homework, because what you'll discover, and you should also do this as well, 
I don't have time to pull up this information. I might do it for you guys tomorrow. But if you research, again, this is slow and steady. This is not, you know, I bought crypto at a dollar and now it's worth 500. This is not what I'm talking about. This is boring investing. I did tell you that, right? But what you'll discover is I believe it's over the last five years, the average return on the S&P 500 has been over 10% per year. And it may be for the last 50 years, maybe for the last 100 years, I don't remember which. But really what you're looking at is your money will compound, double in value every seven or eight years. And that, now here's the wild card on all this, is inflation. So if you put money into the stock market, and this is where it gets kind of, like I said, it's dicey. These are uncertain times. If you put money in the stock market and it increases every year by 5%, but inflation increases by 5%, you're really not getting anywhere. But it's better than leaving it in cash, which is depreciating by 5% per year. So these are all things to keep in mind. So guys, listen, thank you for bearing with me as I'm building my energy back up to continue on these podcasts. Hopefully Julie will uh, join me uh, again tomorrow as we continue on this series. Please do continue to give us feedback on the topics you guys like. This is one I actually have, if I dare I say, passion for because I know how impactful it is on people's lives. And yeah, so give us some feedback. Give us some uh, reviews. We love the new reviews on iTunes where you guys being a, a, you know specifically uh, praiseful of this topic. And always Instagram message us or you can just text me directly for any ideas, 512-758-0206. And again, Julie and I are definitely looking to expand our EXP group. So if you guys are interested in joining EXP Realty, it would be our honor, our pleasure to be your EXP Realty sponsor. The quickest way forward for you to do that is just to text me at 512-758-0206. Well, I guess where we're going with all this, one of the best, and I think, you know, I call it the seventh wonder of the world, uh, as far as wealth creation for real estate, for licensees, is definitely EXP Realty. So definitely explore that. Text me at 512-758-0206. In the meantime, you guys have a fantastic day. We'll talk with you on the show tomorrow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.